And in my mind, you know, August, September, October, it's football time. So I called my coach. I was like, coach, um, I'm here. You know, uh, um, I know we got track a little bit later, but um, who do I get in contact with about playing football? He was like, football? Yeah, you know, football. He was like, man, the football team, they got discontinued like 1980-something. I was like, oh, okay. And then at that moment, I said, you know what? I guess I'll focus on track. Welcome back, or welcome to the Strides is Grable podcast. I am your host, Nate Reese. You are here because you believe disability is an inability. This podcast was created to tell Olympic and Paralympic athlete stories on the road to Tokyo and beyond. Today in episode 20, we have Akeem Haynes on the podcast. Since my introduction to Akeem a couple months back, I've been closely paying attention to all of his content. It seems like Akeem has done everything from NCAA athlete, professional athlete, two-time published author, motivational speaker, podcast host, mentor, and businessman. Without further ado, welcome the ever so insightful uh, Akeem Haynes to the Strides with Grey Wolf podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Man, it's a pleasure, man. What an introduction. What an introduction, <laughs> Well, first off, I usually start the podcast by asking who is Akeem Haynes? Man, first thing that comes to mind is a, is a man of God. Um, everything that I've been able to accomplish has not been my works alone uh, because the reality is I am not that talented. I am not that gifted. I am not that smart. Um, my words come from him and everything that I've been able to accomplish. Um, I'm just a vessel, man, and I, and, I, and I try to use what he gave inside of me to the best of my ability, whether that's on the track, football, any sport that I was involved in and in my everyday life, man. So uh, I'm a man of God. <laughs> yeah, love it. Love it. And uh, how did track and field and football come into your life? Um, you know, uh, some 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 people have it in the family blood. Uh, like me, I had a couple of professional athletes in my family and it's like I grew up at the track. Um, but how did those two sports come into your life? Man, so originally I started playing football in the ninth grade. Uh, kind of an introduction to it, nothing too crazy, uh, but I actually started doing well. I, I, I made um, an all-star team in the ninth grade. Um, I broke a bunch of city records uh, in community football, and uh, that's when I started to think, you know, this could be an avenue for me, a, a path that I could take to making my life better in some capacity. I didn't know what that looked like, but when I got to high school, I started to notice that, you know what? I can get a scholarship from this, right? So I started to dial in a little bit more. Not that I wasn't dialed in before, but you know, I'm a person where I don't need much motivation to keep going, to keep focused, to keep disciplined. You know, my life has brought me to that point where I'm a person that I know I may not get a second opportunity, right? So I know that I got to capitalize on the first one to the best of my ability, as best as I can. So in the 10th grade, man, I started playing football a lot more. Um, started getting recruited to some aspect of it. But then how I got into track and field, my coach in football said, you know, Akeem, um, if you run track and field, you'll get faster for football. A one plus one equals two. You know what I'm saying? So that made sense to me. Uh, so that's kind of what I did. But I didn't really take track and field too seriously. Right. You know, I went into my first high school track and field. I think I ran like 11 like 11.05, 
and like 22, seven, you know, I didn't really know what those times meant, man. I didn't really care, honestly. Um, but then I realized that this is an opportunity where I could actually be a dual sport athlete, which means that it would be a lot, it would be hard for a school to say, you know what, we don't want you, <laughs> right? Because if you're good in football and track, then it's hard to turn that away. And so that's kind of where it kind of happened for me, man. So I kind of started taking both at a serious level, taking it seriously in uh, in the 11th grade. Awesome. And then all of a sudden that led you to to community college in Kansas to a pretty uh, powerhouse uh, track and field uh, community college. How how did your journey lead you there and then to the University of Alabama? So, man, throughout high school, um, you know, I was, again, I was one of those cats who wanted to do every sport, right? So I actually played basketball, I played football, and I ran track, and I tried to do all of them. In the 11th grade, my track coach said to me, he was like, bro, he's like, basketball and football and basketball and track, like, they don't mix. I'm like, what do you mean? Of course it mixes. But really, when you sit back, you think about the basketball schedule is usually in the fall, Right. And you're working towards it. But then what about the indoor season for track? So they actually don't go hand in hand, but football and track does. So I got some good offers from um, my top schools at the time when I was getting recruited was Florida State. Um, uh, Who else was it? Florida State, uh, Mississippi State. But I had signed my letter of intent to go to the university, uh, to go to Florida State. I was gonna play football and run track. So what happened was how I went to junior college at Barton Community College was I had been so dialed in academically to get myself high enough to accept the scholarship. So I got to a point where in the 12th grade, everything felt like it was starting to line up and it was going smooth. Then one day, um, the Florida State coach said, you know, Akeem, um, we got a problem. I'm like, what do you mean we got a problem? He says, man, one of the maths that you took in the ninth grade, the NCAA didn't accept anymore. I said, what, what does that mean? He said, well, you're actually ruled ineligible, right? So even if things would have went well, every single thing would have lined up, I still wouldn't have been able to go to Division One because of that rule that happened in the ninth grade. So it was out of my control. So I went to the uh, went to Barton Community College, not by my choice per se, but because that was the next step. So when I got there, I didn't really know too much about you know a junior college. I didn't really take too much. I didn't really do any research on it, right? I just trusted um, what the coach at the time, Ken Harden, said, and what my high school coach said. Just went there. So when I got there, it was about August. Um, and in my mind, you know, August, September, October, it's football time. So I called my coach. I was like, Coach, um, I'm here. You know, uh, um, I know we got track a little bit later, but um, who do I get in contact with about playing football? He was like, football? Yeah, you know, football. It was like, man, the football team, they got discontinued like 1980-something. I was like, oh, okay. And then at that moment, I said, you know what? I guess I'll focus on track. <laughs> so that was kind of the backstory behind, uh, behind that. Yeah, so, so, so then once I got there, um, you know, it was kind of a second chance for me. 
you know, junior college was very tough. I went to Barton Community College, one of the a big prestigious track and field powerhouse. Like who, if Veronica Campbell went there, Bernard, Bernard Williams went there, Tyson Gay went there, Alonzo Edward went there. Like the list goes on and on and on and on and on. Um, but it was kind of a second chance. Like uh, the reality is you go to junior college with one sole mission, well, two sole missions to get your schooling, get that taken care of, to run fast, but you don't go to junior college to stay. You go to junior college to get out. It's tough. It's hard because there is nothing there. Um, Bart, put it this way, man. As I've, as I've told you before, the most exciting thing about Great Bank, Kansas, to me, is Walmart. Right? So that, that, that kind of says enough. Nothing wrong with Walmart. I like Walmart. But there should be some other things in the city to do. Right? So I knew that when you go there, you got to stay focused. Otherwise, you're going to find your way to be distracted because you're looking for fun. You're looking for something else. But when I went to Barton Community College, my sole goal was to do everything I needed to do to get out of there. And so I did that my second year. Um, I made my first Olympic team that year. Um, I became a junior college All-American. I became a national champion. Um, I became uh, one of the top sprinting recruits. Um, in the country that year, and it was able to get myself to the University of Alabama. Then, when you were at Alabama, did you ever think about playing football? I mean, obviously, they have one of the best football teams in the country, um, and Nick Saban does like track and field athletes. Um, so, uh, did did that thought ever cross your mind? Yeah, man. You know, I had some discussions, and when I talked to my coach, and when I talked to some football representatives at the time. You know, they kind of said, you know what, like we already got our team kind of full on the football field. And it's tough to have a full scholarship one and then try to get that with another. Usually schools don't like to share too many scholarships. And so for me, I just didn't really see the of letting my athletic scholarship go for track and field and trying to get one on the other part. Right. It's I think it's kind of easier if you're a football player. Um, and trying to go over to the track side, right? Because uh, usually a football athlete has a track and field background. So the switch is kind of easier. It's a lot harder for them to want to give money to a track and field athlete uh, trying to play football. But I think if it's the other way around, it's a little bit, it's a little bit easier. So, you know, at that time, I just said, you know what, I'm here for track and field. I'm going to focus on track and field, and I'm just kind of set football aside for a little bit. So that was my main focus there. I wasn't I wasn't really too focused on playing football there. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think you shared your story at the CAP Summit with us, and uh, I really connected with it because I remember you talking about some things that happened when you were younger, I think around seven years old, that um, were really tough things for uh, for for a kid to see, and for me, getting paralyzed when I was 10, 10, 10 years old and seeing people die in the hospital, I really connected to um, seeing things that not necessarily a ten a ten year old or seven year old can uh, really should see. Um, how did that shape your career? Because um, you know you faced adversity and uh, had to lean into adversity, you know, pretty young. Yeah, I think that's a great question, man. Um, you know, I think as you know. Uh, a testament for yourself. Like you're here today for a purpose, right? Like you're here today for a reason, right? Like God doesn't let us go through certain situations without something behind it. 
So for me, man, you know, at, at, a, at a very early age, you know, being born in Jamaica, uh, the place where I grew up, there was 99 deaths in that area alone. Um, and at the, at, it, during that year, it was the third highest death rate, right? So there was two other cities that were more. And so uh, I saw violence early and it, looking back now um, at that time, man, uh, I dealt with a lot of mental things. You know, when I saw the situation that happened, I developed a stuttering problem, right? Like I didn't, I could barely put sentences together, man. So for a greater portion of my young life, like I wouldn't say anything right? I would just observe. And it kind of showed me at that time, like it, I, I learned skills that sometimes in certain positions, you got to be able to just listen. If you can listen more than you can talk, <laughs> it'll make you seem like you're a lot wiser than you are. But it's partially because you're not saying anything. So for me, man, I learned uh, how to listen, not by choice, but because I developed the stuttering problem. Um, I had to learn confident, confidence because I think certain times and certain positions in life, when something happens to you that is out of your control, you're forced to learn skills to find balance internally. And so I had to learn a bunch of these different things because of what I went through. But at the same time, you know, I think what we go through in life serves a purpose, even if we don't understand it right away, right? Now I'm able to speak and I'm able to use words because I know the power of words, but I've had to train all of these things that seemed like it was, it was making me seem a little bit insignificant. You know, our defaults, our weaknesses, the things that people see and they say, wow, you know, I feel bad for that person. I never really think from a person looking at it from our perspective, we don't feel bad for ourselves. We just use the strengths. Okay, so what? That happens. It happened to us, but what can we use here, right? So I know that I had to train certain things in me to offset what happened early in my life, whether it was um, the death that I seen, whether it was the homelessness that I faced and all these different things. I had to do things that trained me mentally to be able to withstand it. I know, and as you know, that doubt and fear, joy and happiness cannot all dwell in the same house, right? Because when they all dwell in the same house, they're all going to bicker and it's going to be a, it's going to be a lot of heartful conversations. But I think that we have to be able to give ourselves what we need. But I think over time, we learn to fill the gaps of what we're missing. So everything that I've been through in my life, man, I have just learned that if it didn't break me, it's building me and creating me to be able to be who I need to be, but also leave message and intangible steps of hope for those coming behind me. Yeah, I mean, that's a great message. And I connect with that so much because after I got paralyzed, I, I started really bad and I had a learning disability. And uh, so I, I, I really connect with that. And obviously, you've had uh, many speed bumps throughout your life. And uh, for me, my brain injury was the best thing to ever happen to me. And a lot of people look at me very confused when I say that, because I say it allowed me to live for the first time. And mm. is there a specific event that happened in your life that really set you up for further, further success? Man, um, definitely 13 when I was homeless. I think 13 was a big year for me, you know, because when I was homeless at the bus stop, man, you know, that day, it was just a normal day. I like it was me going to school and coming home, something I've done every single day for that past year, right? Like for the past couple of years, you know, who 
when you go to school, you, ex you expect to come back home and you expect to be able to shower and expect to be in a bed and all of the same things, right? Like that's, that's, that's what's normal. But that particular day, I did the same things, but the results were different, right? And so in that moment, I realized, one, the strength of and the power of gratitude. But I also remembered like, man, like there are so many things that we go through on a daily basis and we can take that for granted, right? Like coming home, we can often take that for granted. Like being able to get to where we need to get to in one piece, like we can take that for granted. And when something is comfortable, we can take comfortability for granted, right? So at that age, man, I realized that the strength of gratitude, but there was also a moment when I was playing football, I had normal day, I went to get a checkup and, you know, the doctor said that, you know, they found something in my heart, you know, it sounded like a murmur, it sounded like there was a hole in my heart. And after I got that news, um, I was sitting on the steps, right? And my mom came out and she said, Akeem, what are you going to do? And without even thinking too much into it, I said, you know what, Ma, I'm going to continue to go to practice. I'm going to continue to do what I was going to do. Um, because I knew at that moment how I handled that situation right there was going to say a lot about how I face adversity. It wasn't about the football. It wasn't about playing the sport. It had everything to do with how I was going to mentally equip myself to face trials and to face tribulations because how I handled that moment right there, something else was going to take its place on a bigger scale down the road. And if I didn't handle that opposition accordingly, then it was going to mess me up mentally for what was going to come down the road, right? So the same situation with you, how you handled your journey back mentally was going to say a lot about how you handle opposition physically. Right? Because if we can get ourselves mentally equipped for what's to come, then physically our body will do what it's supposed to do. But we got to get ourselves there mentally first. And so for me, man, I think it was those two moments being homeless, learning gratitude at that time. And when I couldn't play football, uh, but I decided that every single thing that my teammates could do, I was going to do. So I went to practice every single day. I ran like they ran. I caught passes like they caught passes. I did everything that they did. I just did not play a single down of football that day, that, that year. But I still showed up as if I was going to. And I think that moment right there put something inside of me that says, you know what, Akeem, every single day, regardless of the outcome, you have to do whatever it is that you said that you were going to do, regardless of what happens. That says a lot about a person's character rather than it says about the, the hard work of a person. And so for me, I always wanted to be a person of character rather than just a person of talent. Yeah. And I mean, it seemed like you just weren't taking no, no for an answer too. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like people ask me like, like what, what made you think you could walk again? And I'm like, what do you mean? I knew I was going to walk mm. again. Like, like there was no if and buts about it. And, uh, our, our mothers seem very similar. Um, and my mom, yeah, there was, there's no way I wasn't going to walk again. At least that's what, at least that's what we believed. Um, and did you find that throughout your life that you just, you're like, I'm just not taking no for an answer. Yeah, man. You know, I think, I think at certain parts of our stages in our lives, doesn't even have to be sport, but I think at the beginning, at least for me, we tried to prove people wrong, right? Whether it was a teacher, whether it was a coach, whether it was uh, 
opponents that we face, we're like, man, what are you talking about? Like, you know, there's no way that you're going to tell me what I can't do. You know what I'm saying? But for me, a shift happened when I stopped trying to prove people wrong and started trying to prove myself right. Right. It became more about, you know what, Akeem, it don't matter what these people think, what these people think that you can't do. But what do you think you can do? What do you think is possible for you? What do you want to accomplish out of your life? And so I wasn't worried about what people were saying anymore. I was so focused on what I believe was possible for me. What people thought was crazy seemed possible and ideal for me. So I fed into that because I knew the ups and downs of life. People, people are going to be with me sometimes. They're not going to be with me sometimes, but I was going to be with myself all the time. So I just made sure that everything that I did, I believed it in my heart of hearts. And if I believed it in my hearts of hearts, and I was going to do everything in my power to try to make whatever it was a reality. But the shift for me happened when I stopped trying to prove people right people wrong and started trying to prove myself right man. Yeah, that's that is so powerful and I I uh, completely understand that and uh now let's go back to your track and field career. You finished up at Alabama and then you went out to run professionally at Altus, which is kind of funny cuz that's where I grew up and my mom trained uh, there. Yeah, so I grew up in Chandler, yeah. Arizona, but my mom uh, competed for Sky Vaulting, which was coached by the same coach who coaches pole vault there for Altus, actually, which is uh, kind of funny. But how is that transition for you to Altus in uh, Phoenix, Arizona? Yeah, man. So when I got from Alabama uh, my last year, um, it wasn't the best year. I was battling some injuries. Um, I was still an All-American that year, all all SEC. But it wasn't what I thought it would be for me. I was just having a tough time battling with injuries. And so the coach at the time, still the coach now, uh, is a guy named Stuart McMillan. Coach Stu, um, you know, I think whenever he's ready to step away from track, he will be one of the greatest biomechanics instructor that there is. This man is extremely smart, extremely knowledgeable in biomechanics as a whole. And so, but I knew him years ago when I was in, um, when I was in Calgary, my high school teacher at the time and coach Ken Rose is good friends with Stuart McMillan. They kind of, uh, they got a good relationship and they kind of uh, uh, kept in touch over the years and, you know, through different things. But Stu at the time, before these names were household names now, uh, he was, he coached a lot of the bobsled athletes, Uh, Steve Messler. Um, who was part of that four-man bobsled team for America that won gold, uh, Kaylee Humphreys, and so many other names. So I used to train with those guys as a 15-year-old, right? So I was actually getting introduced to what professional sports look like, even though I didn't care for track like that at the time. So when he was in Phoenix, he called me my last year. He says, man, you know, I'm, I'm out in Phoenix now. Um, I think you should come out here. And at that time, I was trying to figure out, do I want to continue running track and field, right? And so I said, when do you need an answer by? He said, uh, you know, October 4th. Well, I gave him an answer like October 3rd, right? Because I was trying to figure out how I was going to financially be able to get myself there and live there. And so when I went down there, man, for the first couple months, uh, I stayed on the floor of the place where I was staying with my roommate. I sit on the floor there, I had a sheet, um, I had a pillow, and every single day I just made up my mind that I gotta go to training and I gotta train hard and I gotta make the most of this thing because this has to work. 
So I didn't go into it like, you know, I hope this works. I'm like, no, this, this has to work. Like something has to give. So my first there, my first year there was just a grind, man. I had to get back healthy, battling injuries. That year I didn't actually start sprinting on the track until December. And we started training in October. But there was so many things that I had to work through. You know, I had to work through a sports hernia. I had to work through groin pains and quad pains and, you know, body alignment and all of these different things that I had to work through. But I had to be patient. But every single day, man, regardless of how I felt, my mind, I just pushed my body as far as it could go. And probably to some extent, that probably didn't help all the way as well, too, because you got to understand the fine balance between the two. But my first year, man, it it opened up a lot of doors because it was that time that I became the third fastest Canadian to 60 meters of all time. And I ran 6.51 and um, some doors started to open up and some opportunities started to come my way. But my first year in Phoenix, man, to sum it up, was just a grind. It was a grind. And it was 100% betting on myself because I did not have a lot of support. I did not have a lot of help. But I knew that as long as I was here, as long as, you know, God was still keeping me alive and was still keeping me here, then I knew that if nobody has my back, I knew that he did. So that year was just a grind, man. It was just a grind and just doing everything I could to, to create something. And uh, I was, I was, I was glad that, 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 that I did. Yeah. I mean, to me, the first thing that came to my head when you were talking is one of your messages where you talk about hope isn't always the loudest voice. And sometimes you just need a little bit, just, just a little <laughs> something to hang on. And, uh, I was listening to your hope message today. And, um, I mean, I got tingly sensation going through my body and, uh, just how, how, how authentic and how true that message is, man. I'm, I've never been a person to, to give fluff, man. I don't, I don't believe that you should read something in a book and talk about it as if you know it, if you haven't lived it, it's two different things. Right. So every message that I've been able to share is something that I needed as well, too. Sometimes it's just a reminder for myself. Right. And I think I think so many times I'm a firm believer. And I said before, man, that hope needs to be shown and hope needs to be seen. Right. And there is somebody who is always watching. Somebody is always watching to see how you're going through what you're going through. Because they seen Nate running and walking and talking and, and still doing all these different things, they are going to see that regardless of the limitations that people put on them, because they seen you, they're like, man, I can do it too, right? And I think everything that we go through is much bigger than ourselves, right? And so for me, I always remember that because even during the toughest times of my life, toughest times that I go through on a daily basis, when I feel the spirit of heaviness coming upon me and discourage me and all these different things, I say, you know what? I have to find a way to push through today, not tomorrow, not the day after that, but to push through today because we have enough strength to control the battles of today. It's just when we create days that aren't even here yet that it starts to get a little bit heavier. So for me, every message that I share and I give is a message for me and something that I've been through, right? Our life experiences is what is going to, to help someone else, right? So whatever it is that we're going through, man, it's 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 here for us to go through it so somebody can gain strength. Yeah, and I know in a lot of your messages, you talk about having a why. Um, and that that's something that I just recently 
kind of went through in my life, finding a why and why I'm doing this running thing. And sure, I'm sure COVID might have had a uh, <laughs> a, effect on 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 creating that. When did creating a why come into your awareness, and what was your why when you were when you were competing on the track? Uh, my why probably came in, um, you know, when I when I came to Canada. You know, uh, I didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth, man. Everything that I've ever been able to accomplish has been a fight. To this day, it's a fight. You know the saying, you know, they always says, you know, there is, what, 10,000 hours to mastery or you got to work twice as hard as... I always felt like I had to work five times as hard as anybody else, right? Because what came easy to others did not come easy to me. Didn't even fathom in my head (laughs) how it could work out in certain ways, but I have always known that with a strong enough reason behind something, a person can push through any storm. And so when I think about my why, man, I think about, you know, my family before me. I think about what I'm trying to create for my family timeline after me. I'm trying to think about the legacy that I want to leave, not necessarily for the world. That's 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 not as important for me. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I want to be a good um, influence to those around me but our legacy starts with our family our legacy starts with what we leave behind for them what do they think of us what do they see hope what do they see is possible and a lot of the times as people what we see possible first is what we see around us and that's usually the people who are in a closest circle and and, and those things like that so i always thought of a why as something to aspire to leave behind that's bigger than yourself and so man you know, when you come from nothing, you got to remember that and to use that. And so I always remember that, you know, and on the track, I just wanted to make sure that every time I stepped on the track that I was going to give my best effort towards it, right? There are so many times, and I've seen it from working with professional athletes and athletes in general and, you know, seeing different environments, Sometimes people step on in their respective field and they're just going through the motions. <laughs> and you shouldn't do that, right? Like you shouldn't just be going through the motions. That means you just don't really care like that or you shouldn't do it. So my why on the track just mirrors what I was going through in my life. I was going to work twice as hard, five times as hard, six times as hard to get ahead. And you best believe I was going to do the same thing in the track. I knew that I could be one of the best, but I knew there were certain things that I needed to do that. So my why on the track in my life, they kind of both go hand in hand, man. It's hard to separate the two for me, right? Because they just, I'm the same person on the track as I am off the track, right? That same, that same energy, that same persona, that same perspective, that same, that same goal, that same mission, that same Navy SEAL type mentality and attitude. That's the same, that's the same thing. And so on the track, man, I just wanted to make sure that Akeem showed up every single day in competition. I wanted my competitors to know that regardless of what shape I was in, that you weren't just going to come and get an easy win. You were going to have to work. Like, don't, don't, don't come in thinking you're going to have it easy today. So I just wanted to make sure that everything that I did represented who I was on the track or who I was off the track. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, 
That's great. I go at it a little bit different. I do have an ultra ego when I kind of hit the track. Um, for me, I'm I'm uh, I like to be kind of uh, vicious in my mind, kind of when I hit the track. But yeah, I think absolutely. it's always so intriguing to hear others and how they actually got to that success. And I think for me, success and failure has just evolved so much in my brain. Um, you know, having eight professional athletes in my family, I always was like, ah, oh, winning, like that's. That's what, that's what, that's what success is. And, uh, really, it really changed for me after worlds. I won worlds and it didn't feel any different. Like I didn't feel good, but the best moment was hugging my coach. And I was like, listen, as long as I know that I worked my butt off to get to that point and I just need to enjoy the process. Um, what is your definition of success and failure? And, uh, did it change a lot, you know, over your high school, college and professional career? Well, man, I think I think success is 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 relative to each individual. Everybody's version of success is different, right? But I ultimately think uh, success is consistently, relentlessly working towards something that you think will bring you joy, whatever that looks like. My, I think sometimes that we put so much emphasis on failing, right? Let's even go back to when we first started, like learning how to tie our shoes. We didn't get that right away. But as kids, we didn't think about that. We just, oh crap, we gotta do this way. And we just adjust and we just adapt and we just do it, right? And so for me, I used to carry failure, not failure, but losses to heart. Not because it affected me so much, but because it affected those who invested in me. So when I didn't win a race or didn't win a football game, it, it hurt because it felt like a personal attack to those that invested in me. So I felt like I let them down, not necessarily me, but I'm just like, man, like I let these guys down today. I let these people down today. And I'm like, like Akeem, what are you doing, man? Like, you can't be doing that. You know what I'm saying? So I would, I would, I would take that to heart. It was a good factor, but it also probably wasn't the healthiest thing mentally. Absolutely not. You got to find the balance between uh, letting things go and using things that'll get you better. And I learned that along my years uh, to one, one thing that's going to help everybody is learning to have a short-term memory. Doesn't mean you forget about the loss. It means you take the lessons from the loss, take the positive and use it to make you better and to progress. So, Whenever I think about failure, man, it took probably till 2015 when I started to not let the failures or the losses, I didn't take it to heart as much. Because when I took it to heart, I sat with it and I carried it. As you know, running with a positive wind is a lot easier than running with a negative wind. And when I was holding on to the losses and the heaviness, it felt like I was carrying a negative wind every time I was stepping the, the block. Those are a disadvantage. So um, for me, man, I try not to let failure get to my heart or to my head. I try to be even keel, right? I don't get too high. I don't get too low. But when 
things do happen, I try to stay graceful in between the valleys and the mountains because as you know, man, the up and downs of life comes at you quickly. <laughs> I know, and patience is is you know with with athletes sometimes doesn't uh, doesn't come in doesn't come in buckets. Sometimes it's yeah. it's uh, few very few few far in between, and we we want success or whatever we view success so quick, but a lot of times it it, it happens when we least expect it. Absolutely, man. I've even like realized like. And I'm sure you know, too, like there are some races or some things you get into and you may cross the line. You don't know the clock yet. You don't know whatever it is. And you're just like, oh, it just wasn't good. It just wasn't. It, just, it wasn't good. But then you look up and the clock says different. Right. Sometimes just, sometimes the things that we force and we want the most doesn't exactly grow in the way that we want it to. Right. But learning the balance of the fluctuation of how life works sometimes, my best races uh, to this day are the ones when it just came. Like I wasn't, when I ran 651, I didn't even want to run indoor that year. I didn't, I didn't want to run indoor. When I ran 10-0, I was like, whatever, I didn't even want to come down here and do that. So all of these things, I didn't necessarily want to do that. But then I can remember so many times where I was chasing a time and chasing speed and it just never came. I got slower, right? So I think you got to find the fine balance between working hard, working too hard, uh, letting it come to you and you trying to force it in. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that is so true. And it, it's funny how, yeah, sometimes, you know, those moments where, where, or those workouts where you don't pay attention to your watch or you're, you're just running off feel. And those are sometimes some of your fastest, uh, fastest times today. I was doing some two hundreds and I was like, oh, that was yeah. definitely a 27 look down. I was like, 25. I was like, oh, okay. I was like, all right. Uh, all right. I'm, I'm not as slow as I, as I <laughs> thought I was today. Um, but I, I would love to dive in. And, um, at, as I talked about, you know, 2019 for me was, you know, a really fun experience going to worlds and such. And how was winning a bronze medal at the 2016 Olympic games for you? Um, what, yeah, just what was that experience like and what'd you take from it? You know, man, 20, 2016, that Olympic experience was definitely much different than the first one in 2012. You know, in 2012, I was 19 years old, 19, 20 years old. Uh, it was a experience for me, but now, you know, it's four years later. And I'm a little bit more experienced. You know, I've had a lot more life experience, race experience. And the whole magnitude is just different, right? Because now we're expected to do well. You know, I ended up going and running the 100 um, and the relay there. The 100 didn't go so well for me, um, but I knew that I still had a second opportunity. And so when you are in the midst of greatness, man, it's hard not to rise to the occasion. Right. And so when you're warming up and you're seeing, you know, both, you're seeing a soft power, you're seeing Justin Gatlin, you're seeing um, the Americans, you're seeing the British team, you know, uh, CJ Chichindu Uja, you're seeing OJ, you're seeing all these different guys who, who you know, you compete against. Um, you have really, you only have two options. Either you're going to rise to the occasion or you're going to succumb to the pressure. And so I knew that the 100 for me was done. I would have loved to become Olympic champ in the 100 meters. I would have loved to make the final of different things, but okay, that, that didn't happen. But now you have an opportunity here to not only win a medal, but to do something that 
Canada has not done in quite some time, right? And we had the squad to do it, right? You're talking about, because our order was me to Aaron Brown, to Brendan Rodney, to Andre DeGrasse. And Andre was already having a phenomenal games, right? And 2016, our relay depth as a sprint nation that year was, man, we were, man, we were, we were on fire that year. Our slowest guy was running 10-1. You know what I'm saying? So in that time, I knew we had a special year. So when we got into the call room, I always say, man, you know, I think most sports is like a big poker game, right? Whoever plays the best hand, whoever plays the best face, because everybody is a little nervous to some extent. Everybody is battling that that sense of doubt. You're still confident. You're still confident, but there's always that doubt that says, you know, what what if this doesn't go like this? But in the call room, man, we were confident. Um, we were laughing. Uh we weren't necessarily putting any pressure on ourselves. We knew what we were going to do. We knew what we could do. We knew it was going to be fast because we saw the heats and we saw six teams under 38 seconds. I'm like, okay, this is kind of ridiculous. That's fast, right? So going into it, going out to the call room, man, I don't even think we said anything different to each other. Literally just give a head nod and then it's on. So once the race came, once I went, um, I knew Aaron was going to get out. Uh, I just wanted to give my team the best position and give them a little bit of lead. And so I was able to do that. And then I just sat down and just watched. It was out of my hands now, right? I get to watch my teammates and I get to watch them do their thing. So when we crossed the line, man, we crossed the line and we saw we were fourth. Fourth place sucks. I'd rather be seventh place than fourth place, right? And it's one of those things where, we're fourth, one of the highest finishes for Canada at Olympic Games. Uh, we broke the Canadian relay record. So there was some constellation there, but nobody felt like we did anything, right? But then once things shifted and we got the bronze medal, everything, <laughs> the air became a little bit easier to breathe because whenever you get to a major championship, as you know, what do you want to do? Obviously, you want to run a fast time. You want to jump far. You want to jump high. But you want to come away with the medal. That's what's important. So when we got the medal, uh, I thought about, I remember saying to myself, I'm like, man, we did it. But I wasn't just saying we from the sense of my teammates and I. I was saying we from every person who invested in me, right? So the we was for, man, I'm so glad that I'm able to do this but I know that it wasn't just me alone that got me here, right? Whether we realize it or not, there is someone who is praying for us, someone who's sending us positive energy, someone who is mentioning our name in a positive way that we know nothing about. So that for me, after I got the medal, man, I went and I shared it with every single person who invested in me, whether they said hello down the hallway in high school, whether it was a teacher that reached out to me years after, man, I went, I went back to my first city that I came to Canada with in Yellowknife and I spoke to nine schools in seven days because I knew that this medal was a representation that was much bigger than myself. I probably, man, the medal sits in my closet, man. Like I haven't even looked at it like that, right? But every time I do, I see people 
you know, Maya Angelou has a quote that says, I come as one, but I stand with 10,000. And that resonates so much with me because whether I'm on the track, I'm on stage, they may see, they may see a key, but there's a bunch of people behind me, right? A bunch of people cheering me on, a bunch of people who invested in me. So at that moment, man, when I say we, I'm talking about from two perspectives. Yes, my teammates, you know, our names will always be synonymous together because of what we're able to do. But away from the track, man, there was a whole bunch of people who was on that podium with the team. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly takes a village, that's for sure. Um, you know, like we said at the beginning, you wear a lot of hats. You are a busy, busy man. Uh, you know, following your Instagram kind of makes me tired sometimes. I'm like, man, this guy's, <laughs> this guy's going all, all, all over the place. And uh, can you share what's kind of coming down your stream in the next couple months? And uh, if you have any projects coming up? Yeah, man. So you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I try to. There was a, I think there's a big difference between being busy and being productive and so i think so many times earlier in my life i've tried to be busy but busy doesn't always mean efficient so i try and be productive with everything that i'm doing and um i just try to make sure man i think with covid happening uh, i had a lot of speaking gigs that were moved you know that were canceled um so I'm not traveling as much as before to go and speak. So a lot of things, I mean, I've had more time to sit and to do other things. You know, I, I, I have, I started this thing called Fearless Speakers Academy, which is coaching young speakers into coaching or into speaking their message. Because when I first started speaking, man, I did not know what the heck I was doing from a business standpoint. I never had a problem delivering a message but I didn't know how to necessarily make money from it. I didn't know how any anything to do that. I had to learn, learn the business and, and, and all these different things. Um, last year, I started an event called Starting From Scratch, uh, which was my first event. It actually happened like two weeks before COVID got really serious that we knew about and the lockdown started happening. Um, but that in itself was tough too, because I've never planned an event before, but I knew that the reason why I wanted to have the event was much bigger, so I had to go through with it. So in the works right now, man, I'm, I'm working on a starting from scratch and virtual experience, putting that together. Hopefully, it'll be all done and live next month, um, and that'll be something that I think is, you know, it's going to add a lot of value to those who take the time uh, to listen and to, you know, be a part of it. Um, as far as projects, man, that's probably the main one. Uh, season two of my podcast is coming is coming back uh, next month. Um, some, yeah, man. I I I I just I try and make sure that when my time is up here on Earth, man, that God says, you know what, you milked everything that I put in you to do. Right, and I don't want to be one of those people who are sitting on the couch or sitting looking out when I'm older and saying, you know what, I wish I would have done that. Now, it's important to be calculated about what you're going to do. But Nate, man, I just, I just don't want to have any regrets, man. I, 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 I want to make sure that everything that I'm a part of, that it's a hundred percent Akeem, 
it's 100% me. I'm not going to tell you something that I haven't lived. I'm not going to, to, to produce something that isn't a story of mine. I'm not going to do tell you a tale that I've never lived. So that's that's kind of what I have going on, man. But definitely starting from scratch, uh, virtual experience, man, I think, I think that's going to be um, uh, something that I think is beneficial right now during this time. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I really love about your content, at least for me personally, is that it's very thought provoking. And I'm someone who likes to kind of uh, take some time to myself every day to kind of just think think through the days. And I, I, I love being able to listen to one of your videos and then sitting kind of in my room where it's dark and thinking about, you know, how that uh, you know, impacts my life and just the awareness around that. So, um, I, I really appreciate your content personally. Um, so, uh, so keep on killing it. And, uh, I have two last questions I ask every guest. And, uh, the yep. first one is, uh, where can people find you? Yeah, man. So, uh, social media at underdog, AKH, um, I'm on YouTube, uh, just Akeem Haynes. I actually have a new series on YouTube called stress, which is, an acronym, and it breaks down what every single letter means, and you know how we can all deal with stress. That has helped me. I still use to this day, um, and everything else. Triple W with AkeemInspires.com. You can find the podcast, which is unscripted, and all that there. Yeah, I mean, stress is a stress is a interesting thing. I always feel like as as athletes, a lot of times the the times I'm most stressed that affect my performance is things off the track. And so it's, 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 mm. it's super interesting to learn how to uh, minimize that. Obviously, we're never going to be fully stress-free. At least I don't, <laughs> at least I don't think we are. Um, but uh, my last question is, what do you want your impact to be on the world? Man, so I believe that there is a word and a spirit that represents all of us, right? And whatever word that you think you represent, life is going to make you double down on that word. So for me, that word for me is perseverance, right? Perseverance is the ability to recover from a, from a state or a condition with a positive attitude, enthusiastically um, re rebound from it. Now, I want the spirit and the presence of hope. When people think about Akeem, they think about hope, right? I don't know what that looks like for anybody or what they may get from it, but hope for me, everything that I do, I believe that my story has perseverance and hope attached to it. And I don't want anybody to ever think that I'm perfect because I am far from perfect. Uh, I tell my young siblings all the time, I said, look, you know, I'm not a role model because I don't play a role. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm a person that I'm flawed. I make mistakes. Um, I have learning disabilities. Um, I have doubts like anybody else. But every single day I get up and I make a choice that I'm going to do something that speaks louder than my limitations that society may say all these different things. So the spirit of hope, man, and when people hear my story and they see Akeem, I want them to say, you know what? I may not know how I'm going to get through this, but if Akeem got through what he's going through and he's still smiling with a positive attitude, I know that I can get through what I'm going through. There's a reason why we, when we think about, you know, Martin Luther King, you know, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, that we still talk about them as if they're in the present, right? Because their presence is here. 
whatever that makes you feel when their name is mentioned, you feel that and you talk about it as if they're sitting next to you. I want that same feeling. And so everything that I do, I just hope that I am representing everything um, of the word that I say that I think I am. So I hope that when people look at me, hear my story, that they believe that whatever it is that they're going through may have been through, that they can still reach whatever it is that they think is possible for them. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone's experience through life is different, but um, I love I love your experience and your your version of what you've been through. And uh, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. It was truly an honor to have you on. Man, it's a pleasure, man. I, I love what you're doing, man. You know, it's it's not everybody has the courage to put themselves out there, even when it's when you're courageous enough, you can take that step. Right. But what you've been through, man, just know that, man, you're a walking testimony of hope and how good God is, man, because this could be a different stage for you, man. But here you are today, bro. And I think and I think that's something that we can never take for granted, man. You're you're a walking inspiration, man. And I hope you never forget that, man. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. And have a great rest of your day. You as well, too, man. First off, I want to say thank you so much, Akeem, for coming on the Stride to Grow podcast. Uh, it was great having you on. I think the two big takeaways I have from the podcast are, firstly, when he was talking about how he used to try to prove uh, people wrong instead of prove himself right. And I think that's something we've all uh, all struggled with, at least uh, I have, and I'm sure many others have. And the second one is his... His, um, First off, I want to say thank you so much to Akeem for coming on the Shot to Grow podcast. I had so much fun having him on. The two big takeaways um, that I had personally on the podcast was when he said he tried to always prove people wrong, but when he actually switched that philosophy and started putting himself right, um, that really paid huge dividends for him, and um, that just really struck a chord with me, as well as his definition of success, which is consistently and relentlessly working towards something that you think will bring you joy. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you left us a five-star review. And if you want more content from the Strides with Grable podcast, follow us on Instagram at Strides with Grable. Next Friday, episode 21, dropped with Mariah Kelly. Mariah is a 1,500-meter runner for New Balance and is also my teammate on Big City Elite. And she is always entertaining. And I'm uh, really looking forward to you guys hearing that podcast because uh, she made me laugh a lot throughout the episode. Remember, disability isn't inability.